Hello, and welcome to What About Us, a podcast that discusses how policies affect rural Tennesseans. I am Sandy Rice, and I'm happy to have my podcast as part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Go to tnholler.com, that's H-O-L-L-E-R, and Tennessee is just TN, because we don't know how to spell that. Um, (laughs) Hear progressive voices comment on the issues of the day in state and national politics. Oh, boy. Sign up for the newsletter and make a donation as we are totally people-powered. Today, we have another candidate for State House in Tennessee, Jennifer Foley in House District 65. Hi, Jennifer, and welcome. Hi, Sandy. Thank you so much for having me with you today. I'm excited to be here. This is her first podcast. Yay! I know. (laughs) Tell us about yourself. Well, my family and I live in Spring Hill, Tennessee. Um, It's in the southern uh, district or southern region of Williamson County. Um, We moved here five years ago from Hickman County, which is out west and much more rural than, than even my partly rural district here in 65. I'm a mom of three. I moved to Tennessee 18 years ago to pursue a PhD in anthropology at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And um, I basically just planned to come down here for a few years, do my research, do my studies and take, you know, f- go wherever I could find a job. I didn't plan to settle here in Tennessee, but um, you know, that saying, God laughs at your plans. <laughs> Things definitely <laughs> changed a little bit once I got down here. Um, I was working in, um, well, my, it feels like a previous life, my graduate school life, but I was wanting to be a professor of anthropology and do archaeological research on ancient Maya civilization. So that's all my field work was based in Guatemala. I excavated an ancient Maya palace at a site called La Sufacaya. And um, I just finished my coursework and was beginning to work on my dissertation and just feeling a little burnt out. So I decided, hey, I haven't seen much of Nashville. I'd really like to get out and meet people outside of the Vanderbilt bubble. Um, I joined Match.com and I had my first date with my now husband. (laughs) We met on Match.com and he's a native Nashvillian. And um, the rest is history. (laughs) So we've decided to settle here and we have three kids. Uh, Our son Jackson is nine, Tess is six, and Nora is four. We moved here before Jackson started um, elementary school because like most parents who move into Williamson County, we wanted to be here for the schools. It's Mm -hmm. the high quality of our schools and our, our caring teachers are one of the biggest Um, draws of Williamson County and driving a lot of the growth that we have here in this county Mm -hmm. and we're very happy here in Spring Hill we have a great community um, wonderful neighborhood and um, but uh, you know as over the years I've just kind of become increasingly frustrated with our state legislature watching them pass bills that didn't seem to be um, looking out for the best interests of of Tennesseans. It seemed like they were prioritizing big businesses and special interests. And in this past legislative session, the two bills that really alarmed me were the school voucher bills and the permitless carry bill. And both of those were highly unpopular, as you probably are very well aware, with the the majority of Tennesseans. But they just you know, no matter how many times we wrote to the governor and to our different elected officials, it just felt like they weren't listening. Mm-hmm. And they had their own agenda. And here in Williamson County, even though the voucher plan wouldn't have applied to us at first, we kind of foresaw that, you know, 
the plan was to just give vouchers in, in Davidson and Shelby counties, but we knew that eventually it would be expanded throughout the state. And because of the wealth in our county and the amount of people who um, do use private school and homeschooling, we knew that eventually those vouchers would really um, devastate funding for our, our, our high quality public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of the reason I started, um, I started thinking about running for office and I've volunteered for a long time with the Williamson County Democratic Party. And I was, I was part of the, I'm actually a district captain for Spring Hill on the executive committee. And I also volunteered for their communications committee. So I was happy just sending out our, our weekly newsletter and they asked me to, to step up and um, run for office. And, and I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I have three kids. <laughs> I have three kids. I have no time. <laughs> um, but they said, you know, you are a great communicator. You have empathy. You are a mom and, and that's, you know, you have kids in schools and that's the majority of our population right now. And we don't have representation like that um, at the state level. So I said, oh. well, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? So I took the leap and it's been interesting. It's been a very um, nerve wracking, stressful experience, but also very enriching, Um, especially (laughs) running for office during a pandemic. uh, You know, all of the things they teach you about running a campaign go out the window. (laughs) But I'm grateful, actually, because, um, you know, we've been doing so many events by Zoom and meeting. I've been able to meet candidates throughout the state. Um, and interact with them that, you know, I think in a regular campaign season, I wouldn't have been able to get to know them. Right, right. And you're a member of the the, uh, Tennessee um, Rural Caucus. Yes, yes. Are you a voting member or do you live too close to a suburban area too? I'm not a, I'm not a voting member. Actually, they've just, um, they endorsed me as a rural candidate because District 65 is really interesting. I think a lot of people don't really think of Williamson County as being very rural. It's, you know, Mm -hmm they think of Franklin, but 65 is interesting because it does include the far Western portions of the County, which are Fairview and Thompson station and Leapers Fork. And that area is very rural. Um, although even Fairview is starting to get some of the, you know, or uh, suburban sprawl from all of the development of, you know, people wanting to move into the, to the, to the County. And I think, you know, Spring Hill as well, we have some, some of the opposite problems of, um, a lot of the rural counties in Tennessee where we're losing our rural lands to development. Um, So, yeah. And then it also includes Spring Hill and Thompson station and parts of downtown Franklin. So, well, a couple of reasons that I wanted to have you on the, um, on the podcast, even though, you know, I've talked to Liz Madeira, Elizabeth, Mm -hmm. and uh, there was a special reason to talk with her, um, but we um, we have covered some distressed counties and mentioned that Williamson County is the top 10 yeah. percent or Carol Abney's got three counties that are, you know, distressed. But yeah. but um, you'd said you had kind of a, um, uh, a variety and then uh, we're not in most new, any rural counties that I know of you know, experiencing that that sprawl and losing rural uh, communities that way. Yeah. Um, the rest of the state or most counties, rural counties that I know of are just, we're just trying to keep them on, you know, life support and try to find 
Right. You know, we did a really interesting um, podcast on ecotourism with the bicycle trail, the rails to trail project through Grundy County, which is a distressed county. And the, the other thing is, is, is that I heard your, your history major. <laughs> yeah, archaeology and anthropology. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. And, and also tell us what, um, what your course of study, not the mind, but, but anthropology Anthropology, and the study of human cultures. Well, anthropology oh, is the right. study of human cultures, it, and and um, and basically what it means to be human. There's also there's several subfields, um, including linguistics, the study of language development, and how languages um, reflect worldview and and, and and that sort of thing. And also bioanthropology, which looks at human evolution um, and uh, you know, studying the hominids and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And there's um, cultural anthropology, which, which studies cultures, human cultures, and archaeology, which studies ancient cultures. Okay. So, well, I think, I think you could use a lot of that stuff in Tennessee. <laughs> that would be fascinating. So yeah. Jennifer, Jennifer and I are going to be cooking up some stuff for y'all after the election. <laughs> Aren't we? <laughs> fun. Yes, I can't wait. <laughs> well, it's a really interesting. You know, people think. Um, you know, I did. I dedicated about. I, it was about fifteen years of my life to finally getting my PhD completed, writing the d- dissertation, and doing my coursework and that sort of thing. And even though I'm not doing what I did, what I plan to do, like which is being a professor and teaching, I feel like the the pursuit of that knowledge has been worthwhile because I see the world and I see how our society, different systems within our society interact and how they impact people without, um, you know, and also influence people's behaviors and and opinions and that sort of thing. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it it was um, a lot of people kind of chalk academics up to, oh, that's an elite pursuit. You know, it's but I think it also opens up your perspective quite a bit. And I'm very grateful that I pursued that in my life rather did than- Did you get your PhD? I did finish finally. Okay. Yeah, right after You're my- Dr. Foley. Yes, I am Dr. Foley. <laughs> I finished right after my third child was born. That's part of the reason it took me so long. I was working full time and raising a family and, and still typing away um, <laughs> at night. And on weekends. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That's now, I, I know you've been talking to a lot of people despite the COVID restrictions. And yes. let's talk about what some people have been telling you about what they see. Uh, do they, what do they want to see in our state government? Um, let's start with healthcare. Do you talk to people that are fearful and concerned about catching COVID? I do. You know, a lot of the older people that I speak with on the phone are very still concerned about um, COVID. Our rates in Williamson County keep going up. Last week, three of our high schools had to shut down because of um, the amount of people in quarantine because they've been exposed to a positive case. And our mask mandate ended at the end of August, I believe. So it feels like a lot of people are not taking it seriously anymore. And we're just having rising cases and unfortunately rising death counts. Um, It's really sad. Mm -hmm. And the older folks that I speak to are very concerned about catching it. They're planning to vote, um, you know, by absentee ballot, they're staying home as much as possible. And, um, and even for my family, we, you know, we're relatively healthy, but my husband does have some underlying health conditions. We've, we decided to 
do online school for our children this year, um, this fall. And um, it's hard to know what's safe to do, um, you know, going out and seeing friends or going to the park and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're still staying home as much as possible. Okay. Um, so you had, uh, did you have a, no, you're, you're not, so your county mayor decided to do a face mask. Did people, people were resistant to that? Yes. Okay. And people were very resistant to that. And people, it was really frustrating and um, over the summer when the state did not give our school systems any clear guidance on how to safely reopen. It developed this whole rubric um, on, you know, the number of, based on the number of case counts in the county and the, the spread percentage, I guess. And so they had devised this scheme, a three-tier scheme, where if, you know, if, it, if the spread was under 0.5, it would be everyone would be back in school. If it was mid-spread, it would be the younger kids were in school, but the older kids were doing remote. And then if it was really high, they would, um, everyone would be remote. Mm-hmm. And so many parents were resistant to it. And, and I know it's, it's not the ideal situation, especially if you're a working parent and you have no way of taking care of your kids while they're at home. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, it was just frustrating because even listening, there was a six hour school board meeting to go over all of this. Mm-hmm. And even the school board members said, we have gotten no guidance, no help at all. Mm-hmm. from the governor's office or the department of education's office on how we can safely do this. Mm-hmm. And so they did the best they could and they were trying to keep everyone's safety in mind. And yet there was a group of parents who wanted to recall members of the school board because they were requiring students once they were in school to wear masks. Mm-hmm. And there's still a very, um, there's been protests and there's been um, parent groups that are still, just very vocal about not even wanting their children to wear masks. And to me, it's like, well, if that's the least that we can do to keep everyone safe, why wouldn't you want to do that? And if it would mean that this virus stops spreading and everyone can be back in school, why wouldn't you want to do that? That just didn't make sense. But um, um, I, I haven't heard anyone say this. So breaking news. I think, I think the um, the herd mentality has taken over, yeah. Especially since President Trump was um, uh, was positive and actually was ill and was swept off with some special treatment that in no way uh, any a lot of other people could get. So it's not herd mentality, folks. It's herd immunity, and we've never achieved it without a vaccine. No. So so I think the idea that's that's sweeping the country. Uh, is well, let's just all get it, mm-hmm. and then, um, and then that, then we'll have herd immunity. Well, we're at three percent, and even the most promising data says, well, maybe fifty percent. <laughs> you know, that's millions of people, and and doesn't doesn't take into consideration the people that do die. Yeah, and um, it affects people so differently. There's no yeah. way to pre- predict how someone will fare once they get it. So I, I was speaking to a, an older man who um, uh, I was lit dropping one, one weekend in a, a very prosperous neighborhood and he was in, you know, enjoying his coffee on his front porch. It was a beautiful Saturday morning 
And he actually suggested to me that we should, like, he does not have young children. Okay. So he's retired and he, he, he suggested to me that I should bring my children everywhere and expose them as much as possible to, to the virus, almost like a chicken pox party. Right. And I was thinking, okay, you and I have very different attitudes about what being a good parent means because if I can prevent my child from suffering in any way even the mildest illness I'm going to do that I'm not going to put them in harm's way right so it to me it was just it was just a well unbelievable yeah, well, on the, the sources that he's reading and his belief yeah. in science the other thing about going with herd immunity is you do have people that are going to die sicken and die Mm -hmm. uh, a stress on the healthcare workers, which takes short shift on this whole thing. Um, you don't see, uh, you don't see what people look like when they're on a respirator and on their stomachs and all the equipment, not to mention the cost. Right. Um, and just, um, you know, maybe probably going back to number one is being ill. You know, I, I haven't had my chicken pox or my varicella vaccine for shingles yet because they say you're sick the next day. People have said for years, oh, I got the flu, getting a flu shot, I'm not getting one. Well, you, some people do feel a little bad, just like your children that are vaccinated. Sometimes they're cranky and have a little bit of a fever the next day. That doesn't mean that they've gotten diphtheria or pertussis. It just means that their immune system is like, whoa, <laughs> what's yeah. going on here? I better make my antibodies. Oh, the other thing about uh, herd immunity is we don't know if it if antibodies are actually made and how long they last so so that is all being completely um you know dismissed yeah and i think there's a definite um correlation with um the president um you know illness i understand chris christie is is very ill so oh is he i haven't heard any updates about him i'm sorry to hear that okay so then how about health insurance losing health insurance Medicaid expansion. Do you have folks that are concerned about that? You know, honestly, most of, you know, as you said, Williamson's in the top 10%, right? Mm -hmm. So when we have a medium household income of $100,000 and the average house costs $388,000, that's an indicator that most people in Williamson County are doing pretty well. Um, and I honestly feel like most people are not too concerned about losing health care. We have had um, people, you know, who have lost their jobs during the pandemic or small businesses that have closed. And we have seen increasing lines at the food banks and things like that. But on the most part, I think most people are weathering the storm pretty well. But we do have 4%, especially um, in my district, we have 4% of our population that is not insured. And I think that 4% is way too much for any, any percentage is too much for, for people to not have access to healthcare, especially during a pandemic. Um, and you, we you have some, some people, but they're probably being overlooked by the, yeah, they're, they're definitely being overlooked. Um, and that's part of my frustrations at, uh, of our current legislative, you know, cohort, they seem to be looking out for the interests of the wealthy people in Franklin rather than looking out for, you know, the people who are living in public housing uh -huh. or the people who are on food stamps out in Fairview and, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I support Medicaid expansion, not just because it would mean more people are insured, but it also makes as a whole, our communities healthier because we, you know, people are getting the preventative preventive care that they need, uh -huh. um, and, and stopping illnesses or, identifying cancers early so that they can survive those diseases. Mm -hmm. um, and especially 
you know, when you look at the last legislative session where they passed the budget that cut funding for expanded 10 care funding for new moms and babies. If we had expanded Medicaid, that would have covered that program and we wouldn't have had to pay for it out of our state budget. Right. We are really kind of, uh, you know, band-aiding a, a lot of things. Uh, yeah. A lot of work with uh, Medicaid expansion and trying to get that. But yeah, it's a little bit here and a little dab there. And yeah. Yeah. So I just spoke to a woman yesterday who's, you know, retired and her husband is a retired pediatrician and she's what her the first concern that she mentioned is that she feels like the children of Tennessee are not um, being taken care of by our state government and they're so they're vulnerable and um, the state government's doing nothing to help them Mm -hmm. you know the children's health insurance and making it difficult for parents to apply for pandemic EBT programs and that sort of thing so yeah yeah there's a real inequality yeah. Um, you know, in Tennessee, we've got our, you know, our cities and the people that are doing very well. I know the governor is very proud of bringing um, industry, you know, here. And we've talked a lot about that, how that doesn't always uh, stretch to the to the uh, rural areas. But it almost seems like um, um, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, you know, less yeah. services. There's a real bootstrap. Pull yourself up by your bootstrap. Um, you know, uh, mentality. And um, I'm not sure that, um, well, I often say that it's not 1950. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot more advantages and I think a easier path to the American dream than there is now. So we need to give a little bit to to that direction. Yeah. Well, and to me, it feels, I'll even go a step further. To me, it feels in a lot of times that they're punishing the poor. Yeah, there is a war on the poor. It used to be, um, you know, LBJ had um, war on poverty, but now it's war on the poor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's their fault that they're in the position that they're in. But when you look at, for example, how the CARES funding was distributed, um, you know, small businesses were contacted by the state. Hey, you're probably eligible for this funding. Whereas the parents whose children are on reduced or free lunches, didn't know about it. They had to seek it, seek that extra funding out themselves and apply for it on, com- on a computer, which, you know, look, oh, we talked people, about broadband and yeah, most people maybe not have broadband. Maybe they don't even have a computer at home. Right. Um, and they didn't want to put this, the application into Spanish at first, um, which is a violation of title six author, you know, federal law, but, um, yeah. So they they make the poor and the people who need help jump through as many hoops as possible, mm-hmm. whereas they're willing to give tax incentives to wealthy companies already, you know, from out of state moving here, but they're not willing to take care of the, the people of Tennessee who live here and, and make up our, you know, great, our great state. So it's really frustrating. Frustrating. And we need voices in the state legislator, legislature. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that are going to balance out. I mean, I, it, I I agree that we need to be bringing businesses to Tennessee to help our economy, but let's let's make sure that those um, those companies are being vetted properly. Just like you probably saw the comptroller's report that said that you know the, these companies getting tax breaks, which by the way takes money out of local funding for schools and mm-hmm. infrastructure. Um, 
aren't always creating the number of jobs that they promise or they go out of business within a year. So let's make sure those companies are being vetted properly. Let's mm -hmm. make sure that those tax incentives are maybe tied to, you know, the, the paying a living wage or making sure that there's a daycare facility built into the headquarters or that there's a certain amount of telecommuting jobs because that would keep, you know, our traffic down a little bit or something. Right. Like that. Could they put a little public transportation um, yeah. in or something? Um, you know, Chattanooga um, put in that, um, their gig city. And that mm -hmm. was, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how that went with Volkswagen, but that's one of the reasons. You know, it's a real, um, I have to say that when our politicians um, uh, are so proud of themselves for bringing a company in, you know, um, I just wonder what percentage of that was some, you know, some real um, wheeling and dealing versus a big old carrot will give you the moon if you just yeah. Tennessee. So we have, you know, again, you know, balance you know for that yeah. so we talked a little bit about schools and we talked a little bit about guns so do you have people coming to you and saying um well they're the democrats are going to repeal the second amendment or just take our guns i haven't okay. um but to be honest I, I probably haven't been speaking to that demographic okay. Um, okay. you know i did have a conversation with a woman yesterday who like me grew up in a very rural area i grew up in western massachusetts in the berkshires um it's you know here. This is how country I am. I lived on a dirt road on a mountain and our bus, our school bus couldn't drive up the road. I, a, a, a big yellow four by four suburban picked me up and brought me to school every day <laughs> <laughs> because in the, you know, we'd get snow and then in the spring the roads would wash out and there was no way a school bus was getting up our road. So, um, but yeah, but hunting was a way of life and, you know, kids went, the high school kids came to school with their rifles on their gun racks and their trucks and, but there was a healthy respect for, for guns, right? It wasn't like, a big problem we have here in Williamson County is people leaving guns unsecured in their cars. Oh my unlocked. God. The cars are unlocked and they're being stolen at night. And this happened to just one of my neighbors who recently moved in and it was terrifying. I'm a... I don't know if you know this, but I do volunteer with Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we moved from Hickman County to Spring Hill, we, we wanted to give our kids a neighborhood to play in. We live on a cul-de-sac, there's sidewalks. And so as we were thinking, yes, it's nice and safe for them to ride their bikes because we lived on a busy two-lane highway um, off, well, not really a highway, but we lived on a busy road with no sh shoulder in the woods um, in Hickman County. And it never occurred to me that it wasn't the threat of being hit by a car while riding a bike. It was the threat of finding a gun unsecured at someone's, at their friend's house at a play date. That was one of the most biggest dangers. You know, this um, family that had their guns stolen was kept in their car and they had two young kids. And, you know, it, at any point in time, when our kids were playing with them, they could have reached into their vehicle and taken the gun out. And, I think, you know, we don't have a healthy respect and, and, and sense of caution around weapons. It's become very too cavalier to just brandish a weapon. Um, and when you look at our rates for gun deaths, um, you know, uh, we rank, Tennessee ranks number 11, I think, in the country for deaths by... Yeah, we're, yeah, we're up there. 
I'm and alive. And those are suicide too. It's not just, you know, murder and homicide and mass shootings. It's suicide. So we have to really work on um, educating people about how to safely store their weapons and um, making sure that people who are maybe a threat to themselves um, or others are, you know, have, don't have access to weapons. And so I support, um, you know, the, well, one of the things I would want to do if I were elected would be amending the law that allows people to put weapons in cars, say, and it there has to be an amendment saying, if you are not in your vehicle, the vehicle needs to be locked and the gun needs to be locked and stored safely. Um, but also I, I have been learning a lot about um, extreme risk protection orders. I don't know if you've heard of those are commonly called red flag orders um, and red flag laws, which, you know, if someone, if a family member or police or, you know, school counselor feels that someone is, a, you know, either suicidal or maybe a threat to someone else, there is a court hearing um, and they have to present evidence against, you know, to a judge about why this person who, who has access to weapons should not have access to weapons. So there's due process and it keeps people safe from harming themselves and from others. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the, the initiatives I would really support um, up in Nashville. Okay. How about abortion? People talk to you about their concerns about abortion, anti-abortion, pro-life, the unconstitutionality of some of our legislation that's passed. You know, Abortion has not come up a lot. I think a lot, well, aside from like comments on, <laughs> on social media, whenever there's an article about me, uh, someone will chime in, oh, those Democrats just want to kill babies and raise our taxes. Um, and then there are people who um, are frustrated that our state legislature passes unconstitutional laws like the fetal heartbeat law that just end up costing taxpayers money as they try to defend it in court. Mm -hmm. um, abortion hasn't come up a lot in, in just talking with constituents, but it really irritated me that Governor Lee, after he passed the um, fetal, after the fetal heartbeat bill was signed into law, said we've now made Tennessee the best state for the unborn or something like that. And I'm sitting here thinking, why, why is that something to be proud of? Why, why wouldn't we want to be the best state for families and let families be prosperous? How about we have yeah, paid for education? That, yeah. So that women and parent and fathers can stay home with their babies and give them the best start that they need. Mm -hmm. Why don't we have, um, you know, better access to childcare because there's, so, especially in the rural counties, there are childcare deserts that prevent parents from going to work. And that has a huge financial um, impact on families. And it usually means that a woman is dropping out of the workforce too. Right. I faced, I faced that part of that problem when we were living in Hickman County. There just wasn't enough affordable childcare. Mm -hmm. um, and why don't we have, um, universal pre-K. So it's easier for families to, to go to work. Um, so it just seems to me that their priorities are, are totally off base. <laughs> right. Oh, well, and why don't we have better, you know, opioid, um, addiction services? Um, you know, I thought about this with COVID, uh, too, as well as the, um, um, postpartum funding that was cut. You've got these, these kids, these babies that are losing their moms. Mm-hmm. 
are born and two months later, mom, because of the stress, she may have given up drugs prior with the pregnancy or, or maybe not, I don't know, but then that baby's got no, nobody either. So I, so let's talk about corporations. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. So Spring Hill, Spring Hill is out in your um, area, in your town, and they've been there for quite a while. They started out as a, um, Saturn. Saturn, thank you. Um, a Saturn plant, and that was part of GM, but then Saturn, I don't know what happened to them. Everybody had a Saturn for a while. And yeah, I, that was before I was living here, and now it's GM, and it is a union plant, and one of my neighbors is a union member, um, and they went on strike last fall with the rest of the GM plants across the country, and um, you know, I was part of the efforts with the Williamson County Democratic Party. We raised funds to bring snacks and water and sunscreen and gift card, you know, grocery gift cards to the workers on strike on the picket line. Um, and there was a huge outpouring of support throughout the community for the picketing workers. Um, you know, people were d donating lunches and foods, restaurants were bringing all kinds of foods over and stuff. And that's, so it's really interesting to me to see that people supported the union members, you know, trying to fight for better pay. They're trying to fight for um, the temporary workers to have access to becoming full-time workers um, because what the, what the companies do is rather than hiring people for, as a full-time worker, they'll hire them as a temporary worker so they don't get full-time benefits, mm -hmm. but they'll keep them on as a temporary worker like forever, forever. Right. Um, yeah, so I was really encouraged to see all of that outpouring of support, but then you realize, well, probably most of these people are, are going to vote Republican, and the Republicans just want to bust unions, and they don't want to um, help, you know, the middle class. Um, and I was, I participated in a, in a, a campaign event with Marquita Bradshaw earlier uh, this summer, and, you know, she, she, I think it was maybe the first time she'd been to Spring Hill. And she said, you know, you look around the city and you can tell it's a union city. You have nice parks, you have nice restaurants, you have nice, um, you know, salons and things like that. And it has the, the union and the Spring Hill plant um, really built this community. Mm -hmm. It was very rural, very isolated before it was moved here. Um, they moved here and, um, the growth of our city can really be traced back to the unions and the plant at Spring Hill. Now, is everybody, is it totally union or do, are you able to be employed there? You, yeah, well, I think it's state law where you, um, you don't have to join a union. Right, right. Okay. So, so, but, you know, people then, but the, the workers would yeah. uh, still benefit. They still from, get the benefits of the unions. That's what the right to work law is, right? Right, so, right. It's, it's a misnomer. They, people can um, choose to not join a union, but still get the benefits of the union, which undercuts the union because they don't have the funds to, you know, pay lawyers to bargain and that sort of thing. So. Right, right. But I think that's a good example, that temporary workers. We yeah. talked about uh, right to work with Mariah Phillips, who's uh, running in District 37. Um, well, first they have a place at the table, so to negotiate, you know, good wages, especially in companies that are doing very, very, very well, right. Right. you know, that, uh, trickle down doesn't work very well. If you're a champagne glass on the bottom of the, 
you know. <laughs> yeah, the fountain. Plus, <laughs> you getting champagne that's like gone through all these other glasses. Yeah, I'm yeah. um, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but also, um, we have a culture, a, a corporate culture mm -hmm. that I think. It might be deteriorating a little bit, and this is a good example of that, that they're not always going to act in the best interest. Are they having children work 15 hours a day? Are they, you know, working in factories that only have one exit? No, no, we don't, we don't have that. But, but I think that we are starting to get into some uh, problems. You know, I've recently talked to a, a constituent who has always voted Republican, and he's voting Democrat this year. Okay. Um, but one of our points of contention was was unions. He's not a, su a supporter of union because he's been on the HR side of things um, and the management side of things. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, you know, unions give voice to the, the voiceless and the powerless, and they help level the playing field. Um, they make sure that, you know, you, you're paid, there's equal pay, whether or not you're male, female, black or white. You know, there's no, no, no discrimination in pay structures. Right. They make sure that people have good, robust retirement plans, mm -hmm. affordable health care plans. Um, they are a social safety net in case you are injured or sick um, and will take care of you. And, you know, where I grew up in, in, in Massachusetts, unions are very strong um, and trade unions are very strong. And they provide a way of being you know, learning a skilled trade and being employed at the same time and earning a decent wage while you're still an apprentice in that skilled trade. Um, <clears throat> and it, it, it helps build generational wealth as well, you know. Any thoughts about the Nathan Bedford Forest bust or we can yeah. talk about? Yeah, I mean, it's got to go. I actually wrote a, a piece for my website about it. Um, I tell this story, we, you know, when I was... Um, a teaching assistant in graduate school, I helped teach a course for undergraduates called Images of Culture. And it was about how public art, um, you know, throughout time and history and throughout the world conveys a culture's ideology and worldview and helps reinforce the values and things like that. And part of it was, um, part of the course was teaching um, students that sometimes public art has a very specific message yes. that is contrary to how you know things happen so it's propaganda rather than history right um, and part of the course the last assignment um, was it required students to go visit the state capitol in ten, you know in Nashville and walk around the capitol building taking note of the public art and just the the general nature of of the um, state capitol because it, there's a lot of um, amazing art there. Um, and one student compared the state capitol to an antebellum plantation home, with its marble and the soaring chandeliers, and he just, you know, was oh, you know, yeah. rhapsodizing. Yeah, they're all like that. Yeah, and I <laughs> well, but I had to push back on him a little bit, and I said, think about this because. Who was allowed to express their opinions? Who had power in a plantation home? You know, there were, you know, the master of the plantation home was the only one with power. And how, what, what does it mean when our state government buildings resemble this? 
Um, and, and do people who, you know, there were people who had no power, no legal rights back then, and yet our state government building is supposed to represent the government for all people. So I just thought that was a really, really interesting um, comparison. It was a good but, observation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts where the Civil War is taught very differently than it is taught down here in the South. Um, for us, it was taught as a really sad and tragic period of time where the states were fighting against each other for the sake of slavery. It was all about slavery. And that was, you know, clear. Um, and to think that there were, you know, states that wanted to leave the, the United States, you know, it was a period of our country being torn apart. Um, but there still was that, you know, there's always that romantic notion of the rebel, right? Um, and, that, and so you do find, uh, even in Massachusetts or New Hampshire, people fly the Confederate flag, but because they, they fly as a rebel flag, it's not called, the, you know, Confederate to be independent, anyways. to be, yeah, you know, um, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, thoughts on that too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, I just don't think any symbols of the Confederacy have a place in our democracy now. I think they're symbols of oppression because, you know, that's what the Confederacy was about, oppressing an entire segment of our population. And they didn't want to give rights to women either. And children, forget about it. It was just yeah. about maintaining white, the white supremacy, white, well, male. Mm -hmm. white male power. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had discussions in Williamson County. Our county seal has a Confederate flag on it, draped over a cannon, because you know the Civil War is a big tourist draw to our county mm -hmm. and our historical places that we have here. Um, but our county commission has recently voted to remove that symbol from our seal. And there's going to be a redesign of the seal. And we've had, um, we have a monument in our public square in Franklin that um, has a monolith with just a, a generic Confederate soldier nicknamed Chip on it. And people have wanted to have that removed or moved to the historic cemetery they think they feel like that is a more appropriate place for it rather than having him standing down over, you know, everyone in Franklin. And, and yeah. And, and there's and not I, too many statues to the poor soldier, you know, no. and I, I've, I've thought about that, you know, a, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, those poor guys. Yeah. They just got caught. Yeah, they were, they were used, um, you know, manipulated. Um, and but and now recently though we've had um, some some leaders in our community have have pushed for the Fuller Story project and so they've um, erected monuments around the square telling about the African American history mm -hmm. um, alongside the Confederate history. So for instance, they point out where slaves were sold on the public square. They uh, there's going to be a monument for the african-american soldiers who fought in the war too so you know i think there's it's hard because i understand that people have deep um emotional and and you know family ties to the confederacy and it's part of their heritage and identity but i think they also need to realize that um the the mission of the confederacy has been warped in, in our retelling over time, it's a very romanticized mm -hmm. view of what was happening. Um, and so 
I understand how it might be painful for them to reckon with the fact that their ancestors fought to keep slaves, you know, but I want you to tell me a little bit about, um, you were much closer than most of our, uh, Tennessee to the protests at the Capitol. What are your thoughts on that? Or what have people told you about that? Yeah. So, um, some of our constituents were heavily involved with the people's plaza movement. Um, and from their perspective, they were just simply asking for a meeting with the governor and because he refused to meet with them, they said, okay, we are going to sit here and wait until you come discuss with us why we feel then why we, you know, think the Bedford forest bus should be removed. Um, and he just refused to meet with them and instead called in the THP and paid uh, what I think a million dollars in overtime pay to the patrol. It, it'd be the Tennessee highway patrol. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, state police basically um, to guard the state Capitol. And, you know, the people there were taking care of each other. They would, you know, sing and yes there was sidewalk chalk oh my gosh sidewalk chalk was used to deface i use that in air quotes i know people can't see me <laughs> to deface the the capital but um yeah and i from what i understand there were some skirmishes between protesters and highway patrol officers one highway patrol officer was actually fired and charged with assault for ripping a mask off of a protester okay. And protesters were arrested, but I don't think any lasting charges have been filed against any of them. And they certainly weren't armed. But um, the the response from the legislature, I think, was was <laughs> disproportionate to what was happening there. And uh, they tried uh, the they meaning the governor and our state legislatures who who passed the bill this, that. Felony makes it a felony to camp out and protest. Um, try to conflate that protest, that peaceful protest, with the riots that happened earlier in the some in the spring, um, which were started. You know, white guys were white guys have been charged with um, def, uh, vandalizing the state courthouse and things like that. It wasn't the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. protesters, anyways. Um, so I, the, yeah, this really upset me, this bill that makes it a felony to protest because not only if someone were charged with it, not only would they lose their voting rights, but once they serve their time, it's very hard to find a job with a felony conviction on your record. And Bill Lee knows that he, um, you know, as president of Lee company was involved with the men of valor program. And he hired ex felons to work at Lee company because he knew how hard it was for people to find a job. And so it was a real, to me, that bill is, is extremely oppressive because not only is it suppressing people's first amendment rights to protest, but it is ruining their livelihood and, and it would ruin, you know, take away their, their, their basic rights as a citizen of a country to vote. Mm -hmm. And um, my opponent, Sam Whitson, supported that. And I was very surprised that he did support that bill. And I think a lot of people who know him were surprised as well. He's, he served in the military. He, um, you know, works hard for our community um, on the historical commissions, but he swore to uphold the constitution and support, you know, as a military officer, 
defend people's rights. And so I, to me, it just seems out of whack um, to take people's rights away for trying to ex you know, exercise their First Amendment rights. And, and in defending the bill, he said that both um, sides were armed and that wasn't true. And I think he might have been referring to a peaceful protest that happened here in Franklin. Um, people organized a protest about the monument and they used chalk on the monument in the public square. And, um, but most of the people in the, in the um, pro protesting the monument were young high school students, right? And the counter protesters that showed up were armed. Adults. But, yeah armed adults. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's, it's, um, you know, they're, they're trying to use violent rhetoric to further their cause and, and, and villainize people who are trying to speak up for equality and justice. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's dangerous because it's, it's inflating, it's inciting, it's in some respects, it's inciting violence. It's, you know, people with, um, oh, yeah in our own community have been threatened um, for speaking out about changing the, the, the county seal. Um, they've had to install security cameras at their homes because they're being threatened about that. Um, yeah, and so it's really upsetting to me that our state, our state elected officials are continuing perpetuating the divisive rhetoric. The bill that was passed to in in response to the protests and you look at protests in history in Tennessee right when I moved down here I think there was a proposal to um, to create a state income tax you know mm -hmm. we're one of the few states that don't have a state income tax there was just a proposal it was or just talk of a proposal nothing was actually you know put into place um, in the house or the Senate but there were huge protests from Tea Partiers. And if oh, you look yes. at the news reports, they actually did damage. They threw rocks at the state capitol. They broke buildings. They actually trashed um, Governor Sunquist's office. And there was no, there was no um, you know, repercussions for them. There was no, there were no bills proposed to take away their rights. But guess what color their skin is? Right. You know, it was white. Um, in Franklin, too, our um, board of mayor and aldermen are considering a proposal that will require a permit to protest now in our public square, and you have to apply for it 48 hours in advance. And that's, I, I think that's a suppression of First Amendment rights, too, because protest is supposed to be spontaneous. You know, if you don't like what your government is doing, you're allowed. I mean, the Tea Party, the Boston Tea Partiers didn't go and get a permit when they were upset about, you know, the taxation. So that's right. We're a country based on, on, um, on protests. So it, yeah, it's, well, it might be, you know, now because there's so much violence and so many, so many guns, but um, so again, discussion and balance. I think you had said that your, uh, your opponent is a nice guy. People think of him as a nice guy. He's a Republican. Yeah. Um, and he he is a moderate. You are not mutually exclusive, by the way. You can right. be a nice person and be a Republican. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he did oppose the, oppose the vouchers. Um, yeah. But I think what our discussion and your um, 
your platform, um, Jen, is that uh, you're a nice gal and um, you can represent the concerns of the people in Williamson County uh, better. Yeah, well, I think I can. I think I represent, represent um, the perspective of the majority of people here in Williamson County now, which are parents of young kids who are in our public school systems. We don't have any well, that's not true. Brandon Ogles, who is the District 61 rep, does have young children, but we don't have any women in our legislative cohort right now. We don't have any people who are, you know, middle class, purely middle class. Um, everyone, everyone is pretty wealthy that's representing us right now. And we don't have anyone outside of the Franklin area. Um, spring, you know, my district, people who live in Fairview and Spring Hill experience Williamson County a lot differently than people who live in the more affluent parts of Franklin. So I think we need just, again, it's, it comes down to a, 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 the, the balance. I think we need, our, our House of Representatives is supposed to be representative of the population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people's house. And so we need, we need some voices just, you know, chiming up saying, Hey, what about this? What about us? <laughs> Aptly. <laughs> yeah, right, um, right. So. Well, I think, um, you know, for the most part, it sounds like many of the people that you talk to are problems that are different from the things that the general assembly and governor Lee have been addressing. Yeah. Um, it may be they're most likely Democrats or, or, or undecided or, or wealthy. Um, but the uh, marginalized people don't really have a voice at, at the state or the national level. Things like um, health care for more, uh, Medicaid expansion, fully funded schools, jobs with a living wage. Those things are f considered far left, outrageous. Oh, my gosh, socialist policies. Affordable housing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, conservative or right, air quotes, approaches are no restriction or responsibility for gun ownership. Thousands of medically uninsured people, uh, rural areas with no health services, low-paying jobs, blaming marginalized families for struggling and telling women what to do with their bodies, criminalizing protesters and keeping a bus of a slave trader and terrorist outside the governor's office. Those are all moderate, the yeah. right thing to do. You know, we've really shifted with that. I have two women Republican uh, representatives at the state level. Mm -hmm. And yes, they are women. They never step out. They never step out for women issues or health care, gun control, violence, gun violence against women, I think is really high. Yeah, um, it is fifth, fourth or fifth in the nation for yeah, really women killed high. by their partners. Yeah, right. right. So, you know, Tennessee, it's time for change. Mm -hmm. it, it, it really is. Um, let's get some balance in Nashville. You know, I'm tired of being rolled over. And, I have a, and I'm, I'm, I'm privileged. Yeah. So um, tell us, Jennifer, how can we get in touch with you and your campaign? And where's your donate button? <laughs> well, my website is jenfoley.com. It's Jen with two N's, um, F-O-L-E-Y.com. You can learn more about me and my priorities there. You can sign up to volunteer. We have ongoing um, phone banking and text banking and literature drops. And there's also a donate button through ActBlue. Um, you can also just mail a check to PO Box 731, Spring Hill, Tennessee, 37174. Um, I think it's important that we have people who are not only looking out for their own interests, but looking out for the interests of everyone in Tennessee. Um, right, right, you know, right. So. 
You are one smart lady, Jennifer Foley. <laughs> Thank you very um, much. I think we have just scratched the surface. So I wish you the best of luck and thank you for coming on today. We talked thank about so much stuff. <laughs> I know. And we could go on and on and on. Thank you. You did a great job. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.